to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film, Jaws. The one minute at a time. Or thereabouts. I'm your co-host, MJ Smith. And I am Sarah Buttery, and we are joined by a guest today, um, Martin Carr. Welcome, Martin. How are you doing? Oh, I'm not too bad, Sarah. How is everyone today? Pretty, pretty good. Very much looking yeah. forward to talking about this, this scene, as I mentioned to you off mic. I think this mm-hmm. was the most requested scene when we put out a call for guests. Um, it was between this and the Indianapolis scene. So you are the chosen one. You got in there first and uh, snatched this lovely, memorable scene away from everyone else who wanted it. So a true honor indeed. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, of course, ask all of our guests uh, the usual question, which is, why do you love Jaws so much that you want to come on to a minute-by-minute breakdown podcast about it? And what is it uh, about the film that you love that you love so much? Um, well, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm a child of the, uh, of the videotape VHS sort of like explosion that happened uh, probably early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get everything on videotape some of most of the stuff I wasn't actually old enough that I should be watching it um (laughs) and uh when Jaws came out I was probably about seven years old so my first experience or uh, exposure to anything Spielberg related was probably I think E.T. when I was probably about eight seven or eight years old um and so in terms of in terms of that I just remember sitting between my parents when I was that young when they when you people could still smoke in cinemas <laughs> and not being able to see the film I remember most of the time because there was just this plume of smoke in front of me um but uh in terms of Jaws itself it, it sort of it it sort of came along in terms of uh Spielberg I saw I think Close Encounters um mm-hmm. before that um and and then Jaws came along and obviously for me, it uh, you know it, it's a seminal film in terms of um, in terms of the whole blockbuster thing, and, and people have, have you know they've they've spoken about it and there've been books written about it and and the construction of it and the problems in terms of the production and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for me, it, it it's the I think it's the construction of the film itself mm-hmm. because it it changes tone so often um it's not about the shark i think uh is is one of the main things i i having looked at it very recently um sprang to mind it's it's more about um recurring themes in terms of what spielberg does which is he addresses characters he addresses family um a lot of his films are quite dark uh, and jaws is no exception i think um and as a rule, it's it. 
what it what it actually does as well it, it switches up in the latter part of it mm. and it, it switches from being a, a family drama and being about shall we say commerce and 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 like this small island community to them becoming this sort of boys own adventure mm-hmm. you've got these great characters um uh, you have a, a stunning cast uh, a lot of them uh, aside from robert shaw and uh the actor who plays the mayor who for the moment my his name escapes me um you've got you know rod steiger rod steiger is it rod steiger it's rod schneider Roy um <laughs> thank you <laughs> I'll, just, I'll pause for breath in a minute i promise um <laughs> Um, but but he's like the most underrated um, mm-hmm. leading man of the seventies, in my yes. opinion. Yes, um, man. <laughs> That's what we've been yeah, saying I, every week. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we're talking we're talking French Connection, we're talking mm. uh, the Marathon Man, just just mm-hmm. just a couple of films, you know, where he should have been so much bigger. He should have been, you know, I you know, comparatively speaking. Let me think. He, you know, he should have done, bizarrely, of all the people to come out of the 70s and be a star, Burt Reynolds is the one which doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and yet Burt Reynolds was like the biggest box office draw for five years in the early mm. 70s up to the early 80s. Sorry, the, the mid-70s up to the early 80s. And yet, you know, this actor, he comes in, he delivers a really solid performance. There's mm-hmm. this nuance and there's, there's you know... Um, more in reference to the the scene we're going to discuss, um, which I'll, I'll draw on later, but his range is 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 extraordinary, and and yet he's ignored, you know. In in other films, he just didn't become what he could have could have become. So, mm. oh, Martin, you are preaching to the choir with that uh, <laughs> thought on Roy Scheider because we have done nothing but sing his praises. Uh, pretty much from the start of this podcast and will continue to do it. Um, Every week in my notes, I write down that this is my favourite piece of Roy Scheider acting. Um, That (laughs) continues this week. Uh, I'm not going to change and I make no apologies for it because he is just fantastic and it's a crying shame that he was not seen as more of the leading man. He had everything going for him and it just, it should have gone a different way, but it's he's still i think the body of work that he has is still mm. incredible and i think particularly in this period with with jaws with sorcerer with french connection with marathon mm. man even sort of like small roles uh in all that jazz as well which obviously he got the yeah. oscar nomination for just so much range just incredible range and mm. i am looking forward to talking uh more about how much i love roy scheider in this scene so the timestamp of this scene is 37 minutes and 57 seconds up to 39 minutes and 22 seconds so this mm. is when we see brody uh sat at the dining room table he's looking very solemn uh ellen is there as well sort of quietly in the background and uh his youngest son sean is with him looking at his dad and copying his movements um as ellen sort of looks on and mm. we have a small very small piece of dialogue uh in this scene which we'll talk about and we leave it as the sort of the knock on the door interrupts and ellen leaves to answer it so that's that's the chunk that we're talking about today so mm-hmm. martin as our guest you get to you get to kick us off and uh tell us uh something that uh really caught your attention in this scene in particular 
Well, for a start, I'll, I'll, um, what I'll, I'll do is I'll, I'll let you know why when I contacted you originally, why this scene mm. resonated with me so much. Um, there is a, um, there's a lecture amongst the numerous amount of TED Talks which are on YouTube. Uh, there's one that's done by J.J. Abrams mm. uh, and it's called The Mystery Box. And he gives you, basically, he gives you a breakdown of, of why he does mystery, you know, why, why his, why his passion is mystery within drama and, and why he, at that point he was doing Lost. Mm. Uh, and he's addressing this, this um, auditorium of people. And he uses this scene as, as his example of the quintessential sort of Spielberg moment mm. where there's as you say there's there's very little dialogue um it's all gesture it's all it's it's all done with glances uh, and the use of silence is is um it's so important in the film Uh, and it also what it does is it ties into a another ongoing theme which runs through a lot of spielberg movies which is his ability to get such a great performance out of out of the child actors that he works with Mm. Because if you if you you look at the interactions between obviously your leading man and and his son in the scene, um, it, it drills down into the very core of what the of what the film is is about, which is, you know, it, it's about a man who's you know he's left New York, he's isolated, he's got himself literally isolated on an island, which he can't leave because he's afraid of water, you know, the family isn't in the best. I think the best place. Um, it's they're, they're not adjusting particularly well, uh, and and it's and it's a sort of a sort of a, uh, sort of a pivotal moment where he needs to sort of take control and he needs he needs some support and it doesn't come from although his wife is in the scene and they do have moments of interaction where she expresses how uh, supportive she is towards him and and narratively brings it forward. It's that little moment where he connects with his son, you know, which which is which is a, pretty much brings a humanity to the film. I mean, within the rest of the film, everybody, you know, it does feel like very much like a, a real situation in terms of the characters are, are, are very well drawn, even if they're very like peripheral characters. Mm. Um, but but for me, it's you know, it's the fact that it's bookended by obviously um the widow kirshner and uh it's then bookended on the other side by the introduction of, of richard Dreyfus, which i won't discuss um <laughs> but but the fact you've got two changes of tone either side of that and then you have a change of tone in the center of it as well so mm-hmm. you have tragedy on one side you have upbeat light-hearted sort of comedic everyman sort of comic relief coming in on the other end and then in the middle of this you have this as I said prior to that, this very human moment. Mm. Uh, it not only does it demonstrate the the range of the actor who's doing, to all intents and purposes, when you watch it, he's not doing a great deal. Um, you, if you look at that, and then, you know, it, it's it, it's quite a profound thing. It really genuinely is, and it and it shows how much of a control or how much mastery Spielberg had even at that stage, irrespective of what might be said in in what might have been written about it and and the amount of input that might have been put into the script Mm. 
it's how the camera is it's how, how the camera is positioned how the performances are, are garnered and, and how that feeds into the overall fabric of the film that's why it's important to me does that make sense mm-hmm. definitely yeah but uh but yeah no as i said it's uh it, it really is it, it is you know aside from the, the various other moments of which there are a multitude in this film mm. um it, it then it also it's a turning point to the the massive change of tone when they actually do come off the island it's at that point where he begins to take control of the situation because up until that point all he's doing is firefighting mm. mm-hmm. yeah mm. so uh before i get into <laughs> my thoughts on this scene i want to talk about something that we just glossed over last week i don't know how this was missed um larry's trying to get rid of evidence Tell me more. At the end of at the end of the scene from last week, and uh, he says he has a line about cut this ugly son of a bitch down, and then tomorrow dump it in the drink. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's not he's not hanging on to this shark. He does not want this blood on his hands. He mm. I I feel like he really thinks that this shark is the shark Mm -hmm. Mm. he doesn't want to accept the other the other truth i think he does not want to accept the other truth he does not Mm. like while and and like i said i sort of went to bat for him in that (laughs) that was not the time nor the place to do the half-ass fish (laughs) autopsy yeah uh however it should have still happened eventually and that's where he lost me but that was a line that I've never noticed before where he tells the guy to cut it down and then dump it in the drink the next day. So mm. um, that also imbues what's about to happen with a sense of urgency that I've never really understood before. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, small correction. <laughs> that seemed like a huge revelation to me, and it's something I've never noticed in the, in the movie before. <laughs> Got to get it in there. <laughs> yep. Um, but also... it. Listening, catching. Thanks, movies anywhere for starting me a few seconds early, uh, <laughs> or else I probably would have never noticed. Um, th- having that be the lead into the scene instead of just Brody mm. um, walking away after being confronted by Mrs. Kittner, it gives this a sense of urgency too. Because there's not, it's not like we're saying, "What are you doing, wasting time with your with your kid?" But we're saying like, oh, this child is looking up to you to do the right thing. And Larry has clearly evacuated himself of any moral standing whatsoever mm. in that line. And it, it it just cements Brody even more as the hero to the audience. And then putting us in the shoes of a child looking at him really, really brings that hero idea um full circle like from from here on out he is like ideal movie hero right (laughs) like he he does not really make a mistake going forward he it he goes through everything to make sure this doesn't happen again Hmm. but this scene in particular really i think is what sets it the movie apart Hmm. from other movies that have this sort of idea of 
a guy trying to atone or or learn from his mistakes or whatever because we get to see how it affects his life in just his little home in just you know this this becomes a very personal battle for Brody in this moment you know he's looking at Sean and we've talked about this before he sees a lot of himself i think in sean mm-hmm. sean scared of the water i think the much the way he is and he you know i think i think most parents you know who, who are worth their salt they want better for their kids than what they have and he doesn't want his kids to be afraid of any of anything you know he's he's got this thing where he's terrified of the water and it's probably hindered him his whole life like you know, he he doesn't do a lot of swimming and he wants his kid to have a normal childhood, especially if they're going to live on an island and be able to go play in the water with his friends and, and not be afraid of it. And so we get the we get Sean as sort of the audience stand in looking at Brody, who's now kind of really taking into account that he has to be the hero for the the film, but also his son. And then we get Brody's perspective of looking at his son and being like oh i need to do better for you Mm. um Mm -hmm. and what a scene it's so (laughs) yeah it's so good (laughs) i think as well uh the thinking on it the the way the the way that the um the framing is set up um it's the son who has has the power in the scene because traditionally the person on the right hand side of the screen is supposed to be the more um, should we say the more um, preeminent in any given scene mm. and obviously because it's a small child looking up he's he's literally putting his his father on a pedestal mm. so you do you do get that that sort of sense even if it's subconsciously within the scene that you know he he is being idolized as you say not just by his son but by the by the audience vicariously as well so mm. It's this is we've spoken in previous episodes about the times that Sean has sort of mimicked or copied Brody, mm. and we see it both in his unwillingness to go in the water, but also the scene when Alex Kentner is killed and uh, mm. Michael Brody's other son is in the water. Brody is mm. yelling, "Get out the water! Get out the water!" and Sean is yelling the exact same thing. And he's he's a little kid, so I think obviously he knows that his brother and those other kids are in danger, but he pretty much like word for word says what his dad is saying. And I think as mm. well in the scene back at the Brody house, when, when Michael is on the boat that's attached to the jetty, um, yeah. I think there's there's a moment there as well where he sort of says, says something or, or copies his dad. So to see, I think this is the bit that everyone remembers, but there's those really subtle little breadcrumbs that are left for us leading up to this moment to show that this mm. little kid really looks up to his dad and he has copied him in sort of moments of danger and peril when, mm. you know, his brother Brody's son was was at risk and, and in danger and has copied in them. And now this scene is significant, is significant sorry if I get my words out, um, because sure. Sean is looking at him to now do the, to do the right thing. So... Mm he is looking at him to be that role model he clearly idolizes his father and i think we get that Mm. sense in 
how he is with him in this scene in particular, but in pretty much all of their interactions as well. Like I get a real sense of a closeness of their relationship, but it's mm. significant for me that it's that it's Sean that is in this scene and not Michael because Sean is now the unspoken thing in this scene is him looking at his dad basically just like you have you've you have to do you have to do the right thing now and i i want to i want to be like you i want you to be the hero mm. that i already see you as and it's martin i think you said that um this is when brody now kind of like becomes becomes the hero from yeah. from this point out um so it's there's so much significance in this tiny tiny little moment and i just mm. I love this. I love this film so much. <laughs> Me every week saying the same things, saying how much I love Jaws. Predictable, I know. <laughs> but but uh, I mean, even even looking beyond that point, as much as as much as he wants him to be the hero, or as much as maybe he becomes the hero to the audience uh, in that sort of vicarious sense, such is the such is the the depth of the of of what the actor is doing on screen mm. uh that he still feels there's still that fragility there's still even you know you, you've got obviously scenes with this with where he where he encounters the shark later on which i won't cover um <laughs> but um but there there's he he there's no machismo there he doesn't he doesn't come across as a macho character on screen he's he's not you know he's not ma he's not masculine in that sort of traditional leading man cinematic sense mm -hmm. so as much as he does take on the hero persona he does it in quite a fractured way mm -hmm. you know um so so yeah i mean there's there's that sorry but that's my point <laughs> Looking, there must be a point no there isn't it's just that i'm just jumping in there but uh but yeah i know yeah i think the the i think something that spielberg does extremely well and has continued to do extremely well throughout his career i think he explores every aspect of masculinity better than a lot of other filmmakers um yeah with this very even-handed approach and by even-handed i don't mean he gives equal weight or equal validity to all views of it i think he yeah. shows what's good and what's bad and when it goes awry and when and i think in jaws in particular especially you know the, the more the three leads start to bounce off each other mm. um, is really him parsing that out. But even in, you know, like close encounters, there's Richard Dreyfuss's dad character. And that is like the polar opposite <laughs> um, of, of Brody and, and you know, the, the hero we see here, mm. but at the same time, that movie, I'm going to preface this. Yeah. Uh, mental illness is not an excuse to be a jerk like you, you, so at the same time the movie is also a very good honest portrayal of someone struggling with mental illness yeah sure uh, that said does not make right decisions at almost any point during no. uh, that <laughs> film um, but, but interestingly he keeps the audience throughout the film as well mm-hmm Yes, exactly. And and I think that's what sets him apart as far as that, because mm. I think there are so many filmmakers who could make Close Encounters and would completely 
wreck that Richard Dreyfus character to the point where like, okay, well, this guy's just an asshole. Why do I care about him yeah, sure. at all? Yeah. And with this, with, with that movie, it feels like, okay, he's given me enough to get in the head of this character and I can see where he's coming from. I don't agree with him 100% of the time, but I understand the situation he's in. I understand what he's going through. That doesn't give him the right, but it does make me want to see how his story concludes. And yeah. um, I think that's really important if you're going to explore heavy topics like that. And, mm. uh, you know, and I think... I, I can't tell if it's by choice. It seems so intentional, especially as, you know, the types of movies he makes. He makes, you know, as as his career goes on, he makes a lot of high adventure, action-y movies, war movies, mm. um, things like that. You know, he chose to make a Holocaust movie and um, instead of doing a sort of by-the-numbers, you know, Holocaust-y type of, of of historical movie he grounds it in the, the character of oscar schindler right that's it's yeah he's in the title and uh he's a complicated guy and he doesn't always make good decisions that seem so obvious to us but um you know it's 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 just something he he has the skill for and i think he's he's had that skill forever it seems yeah 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 yeah, no, I mean, one of the uh, one of the films which uh, is is maybe possibly breaks the mold in terms of, of of that approach is 1941. If you've managed to see that anywhere, I have not. Which is, it's I, I saw it randomly when I was um, younger, and it's it's almost it's a slapstick comedy, but it's based around the invasion of uh, of America by the Japanese, and mm. it's and it's. It, it's got i mean it's it's the big it's the film which basically cost a lot of money was a huge flop and then he went on to make he went on to make i think uh close encounters or he went on to make indiana jones and he got hired for indiana jones because of george lucas um but in terms of i mean it's got dan Aykroyd in it you've got john belushi in it you've got um um hurling uh, is it sterling hayden in it you've got Christopher uh, Lee turns up. Uh, it's just a really bizarre, eclectic cast, and it's um, doesn't make a great deal of sense if if you're being absolutely honest, because it's got lots of set pieces, and then there's bits in a in a submarine. Uh, John Belushi plays a um, a gunner pilot who's like this, like he's just literally flying around shooting things. You've got um, two guys who sit up on a ferris wheel and they're they're sort of the lookouts over coney island waiting for the japanese to invade so you've got all these different bizarre threads it's like he, he literally took all these ideas and threw them into a blender and then out comes this film so um but it, that i think is it's one of those you know it, it's it's a deviation it seems to be the one time where he's he sort of veered off um veered off from this this approach in terms of um you know having having these these very strong yet quite vulnerable um central protagonists mm. um within his films uh, and schindler's list as as mj says is I, i've i've seen it but i've only seen it once mm. i don't need to mm. see it again 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and I read the book prior to to uh, to watching the film. Um, and the book stayed with me, and the film stayed with me. And it, it it's a it is a genuine, it, you know, it's it's a work of, of genius. It's it it, uh, it really is. Uh, and it uh, I mean, there's a reason why it was included on the uh, GCSE syllabus for a number of years uh, in the UK, I believe, as well in terms of um, um, studying the Holocaust or examples of of looking into that, um, which if I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I'm correct, but I, I do believe that that particular period in history is, is no longer uh, given quite so much onus as it, as it once was when it comes to um, school these days. So I'm not sure if anyone else has, whether you've got any, um, mm, any thoughts so on that sure. at all. Can you repeat the question? Um, I was just saying that um, in terms of Schindler's List, it, it's been it was uh, included on the uh, on the on the uh, school curriculum in the UK for a number of years uh, as a sort of lead into the Holocaust and as a, a teaching tool essentially. Um, yeah. But I'm led to believe that that's less of the case these days. I wondered uh, um, if if anyone else wanted to maybe have a discussion on that one. Um, for, for me in the U S it was, uh, it kind of depended, but was, what was really interesting thinking about it, um, and, and just talking about Spielberg in general, there's a, there's a process for showing R rated movies in high school classrooms. You, you have to get a permission slip because most of the people are under 17. Um, and, uh, the thing is the only two times I ever, had to do that because it was such a hassle for the teachers because you know the way high school structured here is you see like 300 kids a day and you're teaching them all the same subjects so that's 300 permission slips you have to manage yeah is when we were talking about world war ii and in world history um which you take in ninth grade here it was schindler's list Mm -hmm. and we all had to get permission slips and in U.S. history, which you take in 11th grade, mm. it was Saving Private Ryan mm. um, because it's about the American invasion of Normandy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. And to just think about that and think about the only two times ever in school that I a teacher went through the trouble of having that many permission slips to show a film that is not a documentary that is a dramatized you know not heavily but to some point fictionally uh you know embellished account of these real events in mm. in lieu of any documentary footage we ever have <laughs> yeah sure uh, available to us that they wouldn't need a permission slip for to go out of their way to show these two you know uh dramatic films with actors we've seen and i think that shows one, the power of film and the power of, of narrative, you know, uh, story, um, the way we make them. But also, what a filmmaker Steven yeah. Spielberg is. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that indeed. Testify, brother. Testify. Yeah. <laughs> I think as well, like, what the, you could sort of see this, this scene as one of those quintessential spielberg moments and i i think any other filmmaker would have i think mj you you were mentioning this earlier that any other filmmaker probably wouldn't have included a scene 
like this one, but this is one of those sort of Spielberg trademark things. And I think some people criticize him sometimes for being too schmaltzy or too sort of like overtly pulling on the heartstrings. But you know what? If it works, then that's fine. And I don't think this scene gets anywhere close to being overly schmaltzy. I don't think there's any moment mm-hmm. in Jaws at all that, that goes there because as we've spoken about, I think on one of the first episodes of this podcast actually, is that this is Jaws is dark for, for Spielberg. Like he really goes there. He really goes to some some dark places. But I I think if I had to pick uh what is the most Spielbergy scene in Jaws, this would probably be it, just because we get that yeah. <laughs> really <laughs> touching kind of family interaction and we get a, a couple more moments like that but this is the really the really Spielbergy peak Spielberg is is what this scene is and it's it's very similar to the to the dinner scene in Close Encounters as well is what I always sort of think of but it's another sort of classic Spielberg three shot as well I think it was maybe last week or the week before that we spoke about this where he so often has particularly in Jaws, three characters on the screen and we get mm. some of the just the best silent acting and I think we'll we'll get into talking about Roy Scheider in plenty of detail but I just want to give a mention to Lorraine Gary in this scene who yeah. is incredible, knocks it out of the park. I mean she does throughout the film. I think she is fantastic as as Ellen but this is one of the best moments for me just because there is so much on her face, but she she knows and she knows Brody well enough not to be sort of talking to him at this stage. He has clearly gone into reflective, pondering mode. And we spoke about their relationship. Um, it must have been in the um, want to get drunk and fall around scene where yeah. she knows him so well that in that moment when he was like stressed, head in the books furiously looking up all this information about sharks she knew that the right thing to do was swap the books for a glass of whiskey and try and take his mind off it and she knows him well enough well enough in this scene they've clearly spoken before we see this scene he's clearly come home and gone what a day i've had you won't believe um Mm. and told her everything but she now is very much in the background letting him have that quiet reflective moment and even though Sean is there as well, she doesn't really take her eyes away from Brody, which I think is interesting. She is just looking at how he is going to act in, you know, what comes next, what comes next, and how how he is gonna get himself out of this funk. I guess that's the best way of describing where he is at at the moment. He is just in this kind of deep, reflective, meditative state, almost where he is everything that has happened over the last few days and the guilt that he is feeling over Alex's death in particular, having just had that interaction with Mrs. Kintner is all over his face. And it's almost like no words, no words need to be said. And the only words that are spoken in, in this, are this sort of really lovely and sweet gesture of affection between father and son. And it's Mm. just so, it's so great. And I just wanted to mention Lorraine, Lorraine Gary in this scene for being, incredible and even though she is 
that of the three she is the furthest away she is out of focus for most of it as well um yeah she's still very much a presence and an important presence in this scene that i think is worth mentioning yeah no as i said i i completely concur um it is as i said at the at the beginning of my my uh my rant diatribe <laughs> uh sort of sort of waffle affair that i've been giving out um it is it is a scene which is completely composed pretty much of of um you know of of people just just existing within the scene being in the moment um because i mean as i said there's there's very few filmmakers uh as as both yourself and mj have said who would do a scene which is probably four lines of dialogue mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maximum mm -hmm. and not even not even that really uh and then rely upon the, the power of what has come before and the power of you know what is coming and all those little things which he has done would be um, prior to prior to this scene of, of dropping in when for example uh, when Michael's in the boat on the pier opposite the house uh, and it'll be you know he's got he's looking as you say he's looking through the books uh, the pictures of the sharks and, and you're shown as the audience member you're shown um these 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 sharks coming out of the water you're seeing these um these wounds that have been inflicted um and then she takes the book off him mm. and then starts looking at him and then only after that at that point does it become you know does she then jump in and then take control of it mm. um but yeah there are there are so many little little um things which he does i think even subliminally um you could talk we could talk about the score all day to be brutally honest <laughs> um and i i literally turned the turned the blu-ray on this afternoon and i was terrified and i'm like <laughs> it's just gone i'm sitting there and I, I have to turn the light on it's like i feel like i'm seven again you know <laughs> um but uh but yeah it's it, it comes back to the i i think the the power and and sort of that 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 choice to to not to not do anything too dramatic, to let the drama actually just exist in that moment and actually adds depth um, rather than detracting from it. Mm -hmm. So I mean this as a compliment. I don't know how it will come out, <laughs> okay. but that I mean it purely as praise. This scene feels like a Pixar movie. Yeah. Uh, I get that. And I love it. it yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I I get it. I get it. Yeah. It, the uh, the music, it feels the music in this scene is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um it 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 feels like a uh like like one of the Randy Newman Toy Story score songs. Once again, all praise. I mean this all as compliments. <laughs> I I want to stress, but it, it it just feels it's it's funny because you have, you know, um guys like uh michael G gikino who are clearly you know i think he's kind of in line to be the sort of next next spielberg next john williams mm -hmm. type and he's certainly influenced by john williams but he's influenced by the sort of off the beaten path john williams stuff like the the stuff found in this scene not you know the iconic i feel like so many people who use john williams as an inspiration you absolutely should he's one of the greatest composers who's ever lived but they go for the more obvious um uh motifs that that he's he's done the the more like you know very brassy in your face opening credits type songs yeah 
but he listening to this i was like oh this sounds like a something that would be at home in a michael giacchino score and i wouldn't even question it Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really sound like john williams uh the way we think of him necessarily and uh i think that's great i think it's i mean if anything it shows even how diverse of uh composer he was that early in his career i mean he's basically starting out too around this time Mm. um and and really starting to get big projects off the ground and it's you know this it's it's definitely i feel like jaws is for john williams the most get you a man who can do both type of score (laughs) uh because it's so high seas adventure but scary but otherworldly but very um uh, melodramatic in in this scene in a good way um and it's so it's so good this scene's so good (laughs) yeah i'm so i'm so glad that you brought up the score because i have been i've been itching to talk about this particular bit in in the score and it's weird how when you mentioned the pixar thing I, I can't believe I have never realized this before, but this particular this particular track in the Jaws score sounds so like the score from Inside Out. And mm-hmm. I know because I listen to the Inside Out score almost every day. Uh, it's one of my, like, I, I listen to it when I'm working because it's just really good background music to work to work mm-hmm. to so i am very yeah. very familiar with that score and i'm obviously very familiar with the with the jaws score but this track on on the jaws uh soundtrack is called father and son and mm. we get a lot of repeated motifs musical motifs in jaws uh obviously everyone knows what score signals the shark and then you as you said that sort of high seas adventure score that we get with the with the three men on a boat later but I don't think this particular motif that's used in this scene is repeated at any other point in the film. We've certainly not heard it up to now, and I'm going to be listening out for it now. But I, I like that it is unique to this scene, and the mm-hmm. Pixar comparison is absolutely spot on for the type of scene this is as well, in, in being this really somber moment to begin with but then it turns very playful and that's the score exactly mimics that and in fact when you listen to just this track on the soundtrack it sort of has the beginning brassy notes that we've just heard in the previous moment with um Brody as he's walking away having just been slapped by Mrs Kintner um and that Mm. bit is a bit sort of more overtly melodramatic i i guess is is the best way of describing it but then the way it transitions from from that brassier sound that we're perhaps more familiar with with john williams into this Mm. much more quiet and and reflective somber piece of music but the way there's this like playful edge to it as well these sort of quite playful almost childlike notes as well it's quite a simple melody i'm not i'm not a music person so i'm probably using all the wrong words but um it's i just love the way this particular track is used in this scene and how it is just that perfect perfect marriage of the the score doing exactly what the scene is doing in perfect synchronization as well because we we get that very playful moment with with Sean and and Brody 
as he's sort of mimicking him and then you know he pulls this like monster face and there's as basically as soon as Brody notices that he's copying him it then turns from being this very serious reflective moment to being almost mm. like a game and the score just so perfectly perfectly illustrates that as well i mean it's a real it's a real chef's kiss this uh this piece of score and i love it <laughs> dearly <laughs> yeah no as i said it's um it's one of those things which I've, I've had the um, I've had the pleasure of, of talking to a few composers mm. um, and trying to their 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 biggest I think the the biggest um, challenge that many of them face is trying to um, sort of translate the way they work and and obviously what they what they have to bring to the film um, into a, a language which is sort of common between themselves and the filmmaker um and everyone has different ways of doing that so i'm told um and it would be interesting uh to uh to maybe have a discussion with john williams pie in the sky sort of stuff <laughs> um as to how they they've developed their shorthand over the years mm -hmm. and 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 how he's able to obviously react uh, as you as you say so so eloquently within the scene to to obviously change subliminally change the audience's sort of take on the scene midway through um and and sort of you know add add uh should we say a subconscious level of depth to it mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i had something to say and i totally forgot what it was oh <laughs> it was about sean um <laughs> So I think it's interesting that, you know, for, and uh, this is something I just learned by trying to figure out who played Sean uh, in, in the film. Jay Mello is excellent in the scene. One of the best kid actors uh, anywhere mm -hmm. for, for my money. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think what's interesting is that every Jaws sequel, I, is he the only character who's in all all the Jaws movies? I believe that is correct because i don't there's one that lorraine gary isn't in which i think is jaws 3 um yes comes back but sean is in mm -hmm. sean is in jaws 3 is what i just learned from looking that up um <laughs> and i didn't know that because i haven't seen the jaws sequels famously mm -hmm. but uh i think that says something about the power of this scene everyone who took on that franchise and it seems like almost all of them got it completely wrong uh, from from after Spielberg. They did lock into the fact that Brody has this connection with Sean that he doesn't have with Michael. Not that he doesn't love Michael. And I think that's something that that uh, I want to touch on, too, is like the father-son relationship here and the, the husband-wife relationship is really positive. It's really good. And um, I think it's pretty well known that that's not something that Spielberg had with his father until pretty late in, in both their lives. Um, he, he had kind of a, a strained relationship with uh, his father. Close Encounters, I think, uh, mirrors more um, <laughs> the, the, the relationship that he, he had with his father. So um, in this, seeing uh, Spielberg kind of exercise those, those demons into, you know, what he would have wanted out of a father is really interesting. But... Um, I think this scene goes so it, it cements that relationship so much between Brody and Sean that everyone who took this uh, franchise on following it 
keyed into that and knew that like if we're going to do sequels to Jaws, it kind of has to become Sean's story at a certain point. Did they do a good job? No, but uh, but they they tried. They get a participation trophy for at least locking into to that idea. I suppose get points. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, at least you tried, uh, little Rosette, for doing their dang best to try and recreate the magic of Jaws, but I don't think anyone can do it, really. It's just, it's not possible. You can't, you can't make this kind of magic again. The magic that you get in this scene, in this perfect, lovely wonderful little scene where barely anything is, is said and yet so much is conveyed i mean we have covered in depth i think everything in in this scene but there's a couple of visual things that i that i noticed i'm assuming mj you noticed that the kitchen behind is very yellow and that brody is wearing yellow as well super didn't oh well I'm, there we no, go <laughs> not at all i was like Do you know what i didn't uh, I didn't see that either. Well, oh let me blow your minds. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think as well. I'm prepared to be wrong on this, but I think this is the only time we see Brody wearing yellow as well. I don't think we've seen him up to this point wearing yellow, and I don't think we see him again wearing yellow. But yellow, as we've spoken about, a very significant color i think that it's significant that he is wearing it in this scene because there is that sense that uh impending doom sense that he is becoming ever closer to this threat uh of the shark and soon is going to come face to face with it so i think the fact that he is wearing yellow in this scene is particularly significant um the the yellow of the the kitchen obviously uh, design choice but is a color that we we see cropping up a lot so we have to mention it every time it's there but mm. another thing as well like we spoke last week about how mrs kintner's funeral outfit was like the most black funeral outfit you could possibly get was literally head to toe black dress yeah. black hat presumably black shoes and a little black handbag as well um but that is sort of carried over into this scene and originally i thought ellen was all in black but then i noticed she's wearing like a white pant but she is wearing a black top and has like a black bow in her hair as well so carrying over that sort of somber uh sense that we got from the previous scene in in how mrs kintner was dressed is then sort of carried over into this scene in how ellen is dressed and that yellow, that that thing that symbolizes the shark, is now so close uh, to Brody that he is wearing it. So he is he is about to about to come face to face with this shark. But was there anything? I mean, anything to add on that? But anything else that you sort of noticed in in this scene as well? Do you know what? I I can't say that I can bring any more to the table. For that. I'm I, I feel I'm appalled by my by, by my 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 lack of observational skills. It's That's okay. I, I, I'm like oh my god. Um, I, as he said, trying desperately to rack his brains and come up with something coherent yet intelligent. Um, no, I I I 
Oh God! No, you can't. Oh, that's oh, I, I, that's oh. Put you on the spot. I'm, I'm, so I'm, <laughs> there, there's a couple other instances of yellow that I noticed. Um, there's yellow on the glass that Sean is drinking out of, and he's there got is. yellow pants on. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Uh, I I didn't address this earlier. I'm, sc- I'm sorry, everyone. I'm kind of scatterbrained. I had computer problems before we started <laughs> recording. Um, <laughs> Lorraine Gary is excellent in the scene, and I didn't get to talk about that, but she's so good. And I love the way this mirrors the way Brody stands when Quint and Hooper are comparing scars and forming a bond later in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in in, when that happens later in the film, it's mirrored, Mm -hmm. but it's the same stance. They're sitting next to each other and then. Brody's looking on, uh, like happy that they're forming a bond, and that's kind of what you have with yeah, Ellen in this yeah. scene. She's she's looking at her her husband and her son, and and seeing the way they're both kind of helping each other through this, and and kind of the way that Sean is silently helping Brody without maybe even realizing the full weight of the situation. Although if he did, that would be the most emotionally intelligent toddler who's ever existed. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, sort of the way Brody looks at at, uh, Hooper and Brody or Hooper and Quint and realizes like, oh, hey, they are actually good for each other. And like they're helping each other more than they think that they are. They think they're just drunk and comparing scars. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. this is this is how you form a team. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's I I hadn't thought about that. I mean, they're so we've spoken about this so many times in in how conversations are are mirrored and how i think when we were talking about uh brody talking to hooper a couple of scenes ago when he's sort of trying to tell him that he doesn't think this is the shark and larry is kind of loitering in the background we get so many of these great shots with sort of three three people and i think it's right that at any one moment or any kind of important dialogue moment there are usually around three people kind of when the focus is is on that conversation anyway there is usually sort of like three people Mm. in shot and it's quite a deliberate choice in terms of putting those scenes together and blocking them about who is in who is in what position like we said about who has the the power in this scene which is super interesting that it is this little kid who has the power in this scene. I really, I really love that idea, and I think my 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 final thought. I mean, I have many thoughts. Uh, I could fill another hour talking about this scene, but I think that Sean's little monster face is maybe one of the cutest things mm. ever, and I love it so much. His little toothless grin and his little hands it just warms my cold dead heart and i love it very much (laughs) yeah it's very good Mm -hmm. oh i did have another thing actually i knew i wrote it down in my notes but i wrote it down in a way that was incoherent um is uh if we want (laughs) if we want to i literally just wrote i in my notes as in like the the thing that you see with and then i was trying to remember what it was but it came back to me (laughs) and we're talking about roy scheider's subtle acting choices the slow roll of that eye from sort of looking at nothing to then looking at sean is so good it's it's just perfect 
you only really see his eye, just the one eye in that moment as well. But the way it just sort of like yeah. rolls to, <laughs> to looking at Sean <laughs> is so fantastic. And I, any any chance to praise Roy Scheider, you better believe I will. I will take it. <laughs> Yeah, if they don't, if if somewhere someone somewhere doesn't have some sort of retrospective when the cinemas throw their doors back open, I tell you what, somebody needs to have a word with someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I mm. had the power to program a Roy Scheider season, I would be doing it. Uh- <laughs> oh my god, it's <laughs> like um, the best thing. Yeah, <laughs> but what the choice? <laughs> the choice of fantastic films as well. It's just oh, yes. Um, okay, did any. Anything else burning or incoherent things in your notes that you've now remembered uh, <laughs> what it is that you want to want to say before we wrap up? Um, I mean, I've just no. I mean, not not about the scene generally, but um, but yeah, I just as I said, it's it's one of those it's one of those things where um, there are there are so many there are so many different things within the film which which you know all tie back to that to this one central mm-hmm. point um but uh but yeah no it, it's sort of like i i had a, a very random uh, and it, and it struck me as, as the most film studies thing to think when i thought it i was like <laughs> oh god you know um the whole allegorical nature of, of the shark mm. um in terms of um the mayor's reaction to the closure of the beaches um obviously jaws is is historically considered to be um sort of the beginning of the blockbuster which could then be inherently considered to be um where cinema turned from being something shall we say quite art house to quite commercial mm-hmm. even though ironically enough the you know jaws wasn't jaws wouldn't have happened unless there had been this huge um like upsurge of of creative sort of independent talent around that time in the 70s so it's quite a contradiction um but purely as a purely as a sort of like an allegorical sort of very film studies observation um it occurred to me that that the shark is uh it's sort of like the epitome of commercialization and sort of the beginning of the blockbuster um and, and the uh the mayor sort of that's what he represents he's he's all about commerce he's all about um commercialization within cinema whereas Brody's very much a case of you know, we want to keep it we you know we we don't want we want to sort of focus on the people we want to keep it focused on the individuals which in in the case of Jaws would be um, the townsfolk they want to keep the idea of creativity safe mm. rather than opening it up to commerce there you go Oof. that's we'll be picking oh, no. that up. <laughs> we'll be picking that up in a few weeks Sorry. I feel <laughs> Sorry yeah, I think so too. Mm. Well, the, the one thing I will say is it's it's really interesting too to think about sort of that that idea, right? So we've talked about this before. There's a lot of French New Wave stuff in this movie, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that like particularly with the natural wipes on the on the beach and stuff like that. And this whole generation of filmmakers was driven by that 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 previous tradition of the you know the 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 foreign art house films like the Italian movies and, you know, uh, the Bergmans and Mm. French New Wave and things like that. And we see that increase in the 70s hit such a fever pitch that those things become the most commercial things possible with something like Jaws and The Godfather. Mm. And then just as soon as it kind of hits a crescendo, 
uh, we get, I think, the one-two punch that was the kind of the death knell for that movement, and some of these filmmakers were able to survive it, and some of them weren't, are, um, is it Days of Heaven, the Michael Cimino? Yeah. Yeah, Days of Heaven and 1941. Mm. Yeah, sure. And Spielberg was able to convert and switch over <laughs> to the the more populist filmmaking that, that, that followed, and Michael Cimino's career was in shambles after. <laughs> yeah, and I, but fun, funny enough, he did, uh, I think it was um, like 87, 88, he did a Mickey Rourke movie called Year of the Dragon. Mm-hmm. Which is just that that's that's like I think his like return to form it's it's one of those it's a rare thing but but you're right apart from apart from that sort of that one sort of um moment of resurgence he uh he really bit the big one unfortunately, which is a shame because deer hunters just well yeah that's that's another another conversation <laughs> for another time I think. Yeah, well, and then and then you have guys like Francis Ford Coppola who decided to just do the slow decline over decades. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I can't, I can't disagree with you. I really, I really can't. And it's mm-hmm. that's it's that that short. I think I've I've seen one from the heart. It's Oof. you know, there's there's good stuff there, you know. But he did Jack as well. What the hell was happening there? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you know, it's just like you're 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 Coppola. So you just feel like getting the man is shaking him by the shoulders. Come on. You know every, t- every time I learn every time I remember that Jack is a Francis Ford Coppola movie, it feels like I'm learning it for the first time because it doesn't feel like a real thing. Yeah, this is like every time that I remember that um Happy Feet was directed by George Miller. <laughs> George Miller. I'm like, yeah. no, that's a that's a lie. Like someone made it's like someone made that up. They have to have done. And I've just this very second looked it up on Google in case I was wrong. And every time I yeah. find that out, I'm like, you're telling me that the person who made the Mad Max did... Fury Road also made <laughs> Fury Road Happy Feet. <laughs> The, the, the most uh, the most aggressively antagonistic in your face film ever yeah um fury road not happy Feet, yeah. um. <laughs> that's a crossover i want to see um. i was like i need to watch happy feet again <laughs> oh. oh yeah oh my god see i haven't seen what's the other one he did um coppola did he did the rainmaker didn't he did the yeah rainmaker? yeah i i i feel like you know i i'm not entirely sure but See, I, I still like. I tell you what, I, I like. I like Dracula. If you if you're gonna, you know, if we're going down the, shall we say, <laughs> uh, his less masterful attempts at filmmaking, you know, then apart from the fact that it looks like it's made entirely in a studio, um, uh, it's it was good. I liked. I liked. I liked Gary Oldman. I did. I thought he did a glorious job. Um, I'm not entirely sure what Richard E. Grant was doing there, but I don't think he knew either. So <laughs> that's fine. You well, know. And you also have to keep in mind, Sarah, George Miller, also responsible for the Babe movies. Oh, that's the other one. I knew it was in the back of my really? brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. He wrote How the did... first one and he wrote and directed the second one. Oh. <laughs> and uh, the the perfect uh, close uh, on this note, I believe, is that'll do, pig. That'll do. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> that'll do, shark. Yeah, that'll do. Oh boy, I feel like this this 
particular conversation could continue for many many hours but um yeah. alas we will probably have to start wrapping it up now but martin thank you so much for being um a really really great guest we've loved having you thank on you. and talking about this scene so uh you now get the chance to tell people where they can find you on social media if they want and if you've got anything to plug as well then the floor is yours Thank you very much. Um, what have I got to plug? Uh, let me think. I've got a website, uh, which is um, really easy because it's my name, uh, followed by .co.uk. So that's <laughs> Martin Carl Martin with an I. Car as in the motive, uh, as in the automotive thing, but with two R's. Um, and that's .co.uk. Um, and that's been up and running for about a week, 10 days now. Um, I am, you can find me on Flickering Myth. Um, doing TV TV reviews, the occasional film review, and interviewing some some uh, variously variously interesting and, and creative people. Mm-hmm. Um, I also write for We've Got This Covered, um, and I do film reviews for them. Uh, so that's still very much in its infancy, but I've done two. I've done a couple of them, so uh, that's uh, they've all gone down well. So happy days there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Frontage Two. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, again, just type in Martin Carr and there I am. And if you want to do, do a Google search, um, I'm somewhere between, I think I think there's me and the uh, the lead singer with the Boo Radleys for anyone who knows that. <laughs> uh, that's it. That, that, that's my claim to fame. Yeah, um, not to be confused so they, with. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I haven't got a big perm. Martin, Martin Carr, Boo Radley has a big perm, which is uh, all... all uh, all, all kudos to him for the big part. But there you are. <laughs> yes, and I believe we have you back on uh, for another episode towards the end. I feel like that's many weeks slash months from now, but um, we'll look forward to uh, to having you back on for another another episode. Um, I'm trying to remember which one uh, that is. Off the I top believe, of my head, but isn't it? Isn't it? I, I'm, I'm seem, I seem to think it was. Isn't it Hooper and Hooper and Quint when they meet? It's the uh, it's the rope scene. Yes, the here's to swimming with bow-legged women bit is the uh, yeah. is how I have mm. it in my notes. Uh, so <laughs> we'll look forward to uh, to talking about some great uh, character dynamics that we get in that scene. That's gonna that's gonna be another fun one. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, if you want to follow us uh, the show on Twitter, you can find us at Jaws for a minute. You can find me at Sarah Buddery, and you can find MJ at MJ Smith eight nine one. Um, you can email us if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, feelings, or otherwise. Uh, Jaws for a minute at gmail.com is our email address. You can buy our merchandise. Uh, so our competition winner, Griff, he recently tweeted out a picture of him uh, in his brand new t-shirt that just arrived. And if you would also like to look that sharp, then you can buy <laughs> our t-shirt, uh, two designs through Tee Public and Redbubble. And you can find the link in our Twitter bio for that. Um, if you wanted to show your support for the show in another way, you can buy us a coffee. Um, the link is in the Twitter bio again for that. Um, hey, Sarah. Yeah? Uh, can I suggest that instead of buying us a coffee, they buy us a Jaws hot dog from Universal <laughs> Studios Japan? I knew this was about to get derailed. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the money through our coffee account may or may not be used to buy actual caffeine and will more likely be to buy us some Jaws themed hot dogs. Uh, we will post the link out to that because it is wild. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
I saw that come up in the Discord and I was like, this is a this is a good uh this is a good thing to see as I sign on to a uh, record a podcast. Um yeah. yeah, I I like I said, I was gonna send that to you privately, but I was like, no, nah, this feels like a Discord link. Everyone needs to be involved with this. This feels like a no context thing that all of our guests need to see as they log on to talk to <laughs> us. <laughs> So yes, uh, you can buy us a coffee and or a Jaws hot dog. Um, you can find the link in our bio on how to do that. Um, if you want to give us uh, a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast and it allows you to do that, then we would really appreciate that. Um, it helps other people find the show and pushes us up the rankings. We've had some people sort of finding us organically, so not just through Twitter, so people just looking for jaws podcast and the only way that happens is if we have a lovely five star uh preferably rating from yourselves um and a review as well that just helps um people to choose us instead of their other jaws related podcasts um i think that is just about everything um so until next time uh it's jaws o'clock somewhere <laughs>